0: Hey, welcome to the Rooted to Live podcast. Thank you for listening and sharing these podcasts with other people. To learn more about or support Rooted to Live ministries, please visit us at rootedtolive.com. This is episode number four in the Path to Happiness series. Desiring happiness and satisfaction is a longing that is hardwired into our being. The soul is hungry and the heart is thirsty. Jesus has something to say about the insatiable hunger of the human heart, and about the relentless thirst of our soul. In his sermon on the mount, found in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, we have been considering Christ's teachings on true happiness or the blessed life. In verse 1 we read, Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit." for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And that's the part of the message that we're sticking on today. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Have you ever had a craving for something? a deep desire. Maybe you've gone on a a long walk, a jog, a run, and came home just desiring that ice cold uh, glass of water. Uh, For me, sometimes maybe it's uh, a large coke. But you know what it's like to crave and truly thirst for something. Maybe you have a craving for your favorite foods. My wife lately has been doing a lot of baking on Saturdays. In fact, recently she made these banana chocolate chip muffins and uh, they're really good. When Christ speaks of hungering and thirsting for something, to hunger and thirst, what is he speaking of? To hunger and thirst for what? He says righteousness. Truly happy or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In Jesus' description of those who are happy, there are really uh, two groups of four in these beatitudes. Two sections with four statements in each section. Both groups end with a reference to righteousness. For those who are dependent on God, who are broken, mourning of sin, and empty of self, they would be truly happy, which leads to a desire for righteousness, which the Lord says would lead to filling. From inward to outward, then, to the next section of the Beatitudes, righteousness then takes actions of mercy, purity, peacemaking. All, of course, are characteristics of God which result in persecution because of righteousness, uh, something Jesus himself can testify to. So the structure gives us what Jesus has in mind concerning righteousness. Now, this word righteousness occurs several times in his Sermon on the Mount, found in chapters 5-7 through in the book of Matthew. So a good way to know what he means by righteousness is to consider his use of that word throughout his message. The righteousness he is talking about is not the kind that would naturally come to the listeners' minds of that time. They would have thought of, most certainly, they would have thought of um, influential religious leaders of the day like the Pharisees. But what Jesus is going to show them is that it's a righteousness that they don't even know. In fact, later on in this message, in verse 20, we can read when Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure people would have th- heard this and thought, if that is true, I have no shot then. And they're right. See, I think the whole sermon is setting up an understanding that we have no shot in our own version of do goodness or our own forms of righteousness. It shows us how much we need Jesus. It shows us how much we need the grace and mercy of God. So we have a contrast here the best that mankind can do, self-righteousness, versus the righteousness of God. Righteousness is God's character of holiness demonstrated in tangible and textured ways. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to continually desire God's perfect character to take root in our lives and then continually living it out for the sake of others in the glory of God. Consider Christ's references to righteousness in the rest of chapter 5. They are example of God's kind of righteousness versus mankind's best effort. Actually, there are examples of how much more God's righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. And the listeners would know exactly what Jesus is speaking of. In verses 21 through 26, we see a righteousness that has no hatred in heart. In verses 27 through 30, a righteousness that has no adultery in heart. In verses 31 through 32, a righteousness that keeps covenants. 33 through 37, a righteousness that keeps its word. In verses 38 through 42, we see a righteousness that responds to evil with good. In verses 43 through 48, a righteousness that loves neighbors and enemies. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, we see Christ's teaching of a righteousness that gives without desire of praise or reward. Isn't it true that God's form of righteousness surpasses the kind that we can create? I mean, I don't make it through this. I myself stumble at every point of this teaching. To live according to this and his version of righteousness is impossible without him. His righteousness shows mercy, is pure in heart, and makes peace. My self-righteousness doesn't do any of those things. So the hunger, thirst of our lives is placed there by God to invite us to realize that we were made for a very different place than this world as it is. And that place is found in a relationship with Jesus. Truly happy are the people who crave the righteousness of God to be put on display in their lives. Jesus makes another reference to righteousness in this same message. It's found in chapter 6, verse 33 of the book of Matthew when jesus says but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well essentially the same thing as matthew chapter 5 verse 6 jesus doesn't want more heartless disconnected religious experiences for us he's not desiring for us to have a greater religious experience or more of church or more spirituality but rather the character of god in our lives at the end of this sermon Um, Jesus shares for what many is one of the most scary uh, scariest parts of scripture when he says many will say to me Lord Lord do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them Jesus says I never knew you depart from me you evildoers evildoers what's what's the motivation behind Jesus saying and calling people evildoers Jesus is saying that it's possible to call him Lord. It's possible to prophesy and be engaged in spiritual warfare and perform miracles even, but not even know him. And why did Jesus say he didn't know them? Well, they they weren't seeking to be filled with God's righteousness. Lots of religion, but no relationship. No hunger for God's righteousness in their life. They were fine to try it their own way. So let me share with you a glimpse of the intensity of the religious performance of the people Jesus was speaking of. They had determined, uh, the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the experts of the law had determined that there were at least 240 positive commands in the Old Testament, the do this list, and about 365 prohibition commands, the don't do this list. So just to be safe, they made commands for themselves to put on top of God's commands so as to safeguard themselves from breaking God's commands. And then they put those additional commands upon all people. Another way to look at it is, the Pharisees didn't ask, how can we keep God's law? Because we know that God's law is love, and because he so loves, we love him and one another. But their view was, how can I not break God's law? How can we make sure we don't break it? which is different. It's completely different. So they established their own laws on top of God's law and then would determine their own righteousness as well as judge others' righteousness using their own standard as the measuring device. Let's take an example. Let's consider the Sabbath. The Sabbath is really a gift from God to people, not a gift from people to God, a command to rest. That's to our good. So if we viewed that law, that command, which is really a gift to us with the idea of how do we not break it view, then that means, of course, we we don't work because we're supposed to rest. And if we consider like plowing a field as work and plowing literally is dividing dust or dirt, then no one must drag a chair across the floor whereby dust might be divided because that would be work. That's plowing and plowing is work and working on the Sabbath violates God's command. Was that God's point of the Sabbath? Do you think anyone ever asked themselves, why are we living like this? There was this Sabbath day when Jesus and his followers were walking through the grain fields and they picked some heads of grain, rubbed it in their hands, threw the shuck away, and began to eat. The religious elite believed that the disciples weren't keeping God's law. In their minds, any true Messiah would keep their laws and traditions they believed. As Jesus preached against their righteousness and proclaimed himself to be the Messiah... Of course, they plotted to kill him because his way would destroy their way of life. The disciples were simply feeding themselves. Sometimes it's easy for us to look at those religious folks of old and think that they're ridiculous, over-the-top or off-base. But couldn't we ask ourselves, do you, do I, do we, or the people we associate with, or our church, do we have laws that we've made equivalent to God's righteousness? Have we added to God's word our own rules and put them on others and judged them as if they're not righteous? We judge and try to determine really if they're in relationship with God based on our own beliefs of how that's supposed to go. Based on their adherence to our own rules rather than Christ's life in them. I can remember uh, growing up, I had a few babysitters in my life Um, Sometimes we had babysitters that would watch my younger brother and I um, through the working hours of the day in the summer while both my parents went to work. I remember one babysitter I had, her name was Rebecca. She was amazing. I think she might have been around 18 or 19 when I was 9 and 10, maybe even to 11. In fact, I can remember now one time thinking, oh man, I'm going to ask this girl to go with me. She's amazing. I never asked her, of course. But I remember at one point while she was our babysitter, she started dating this guy and he had a little bit uh, too long of hair for my comfort and he had an earring and I thought to myself oh man, Rebecca's really in trouble because she's dating a guy that couldn't possibly, possibly be saved or know Jesus because I determined by looking at him what his heart condition was now, I was never taught that my parents didn't put those beliefs on me I just concluded those kind of things but what's the truth? You may have been a part of groups before, or churches, or other believers that believed if certain people shopped at certain stores that sold certain products, who were backed by certain groups of people, that they couldn't be Christ-like or Christian. I've seen this sometimes before with how people defend the kind of education they have for their children, whether it's a private school, or homeschooling, or public school, and people will make calls even decisions about other people and their state of righteousness or unrighteousness based on those decisions. See, when we seek to find assurance from God in our performance of our rules, not on Christ's performance on our behalf, we lose. And we won't have true joy. We we won't be actually on the path to happiness. When we identify others as unrighteous because they don't adhere to the rules we made up of, that we decided, rather than the standard being Jesus Christ himself, we lose. And the only appropriate response when we come to recognize that is, is to repent. Could we agree that it's possible to go to church, be involved in religious things, follow the rules, but not actually be close to Jesus, and therefore not be filled, not actually be on the path to true happiness? Satisfaction comes from God to those whose passion in life is to know His righteousness and 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 to know His Son, to to know Jesus. To see Jesus be made known in the world. So knowing him and making him known to others. We all hunger and thirst for satisfaction in life. I don't have any doubt about that. And usually we seek it in in what the world has to offer, which includes misguided religious habits. None of that will will address the God-given hunger and thirst in our souls. We will never find true fulfillment without a change of heart. And this is why Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah in saying to their religious leaders in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7-9, through You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teaching are but rules taught by men. What is Jesus saying? Right action. They have right actions. They honor me with their lips, but it's the wrong geography. Their hearts are far from him. When Jesus talks about a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, he isn't talking about keeping more rules, he isn't speaking of righteous or he is speaking of a righteous righteousness from God to our longing hearts that fills and spills out to the world around us, which is actually impossible without knowing Jesus personally Christ's description of happiness so far then. In this book of Matthew, the first few verses of chapter 5 look like this. It begins with turning to Jesus and realizing our brokenness and our need for help. It continues by mourning intellectually and emotionally as we look at our sin and see the darkness of our hearts. Knowing that we need cleansing, getting over ourselves, and then being free to hunger and thirst for righteousness or for more of Jesus. So, where is the happiness in all this then again? Well, verse 6 says it th- this way Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the descriptor of the person who's happy. And then here's the blessing, here's the promise for they will be filled. Will be filled. Usually a word related to being satiated by food, but in this context, it's a heartfelt satisfaction in God. Enabling people to live out his character of righteousness. We don't fill ourselves, he fills us. Is it possible that you've been trying to get your satisfaction, your happiness by other means? And you know it's not going to work. So you're invited to seek God, his righteousness. To get to know him. To get to know his view of you. How especially fond of you he is how dearly loved and lovely you are in his eyes. And Jesus promises that you'll find fulfillment, happiness, and contentment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled.